This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Well, I'm on the telephone with Bob Allison, WB1GCM. And Bob is the ARRL Assistant Laboratory Manager, and he's also the product review test engineer for all those reviews you see in QST. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Steve. Thanks for having me on your podcast again. I'm going to throw a curveball question at you. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pretend that I just handed you a large wad of money, and I said, Bob, go out and buy the best transceiver, HF transceiver that you possibly can for a given application. Let's, well, to start, let's make it casual, casual operating. What parameters, if you had that in mind, would you look for? Well, Steve, I would look for a radio for a casual operator. I would look for a radio that has a large display, large knobs, is easy to uh, go through the menu and has some halfway decent noise reduction. But if I was choosing a radio, I would take the radio that looks really, really cool. Now, you have to admit, there are a lot of HF radios out there, and there's uh, several different companies out there to choose from these days. I like the ones that look really, really cool, the kind that you want to impress your friends with. Well, what about performance? Are there certain specs you would look for? Absolutely. Now, if I'm just a casual operator, Steve, I'm not overly concerned with the dynamic range capabilities of the receiver inside the transceiver. I would look for something in the middle of the road with uh, dynamic ranges in the 80s to 90s, uh, a mid-level performance level. And uh, I wouldn't go necessarily for the absolute high-end radio that has the highest dynamic ranges. Those radios are really reserved for those that have large antenna arrays, large uh, stack yaggies, uh, serious antenna systems that will really get out. Uh, now, you need a dynamic range, high dynamic ranges, for a good large antenna arrays because you have more voltage at the antenna jack. For the casual operator, you're on a G5RV maybe a dipole, maybe a a vertical, maybe even a three-element Yagi. You can uh, definitely get away with just a middle-of-the-road, average uh, performance uh, transceiver. Of course, there's the economy-minded transceiver. There's a bunch of uh, inexpensive HF receivers these days or transceivers. Um, They're not going to have the higher dynamic ranges, and they're very suitable for portable work. Bob, for those who may not be aware, can you define or describe dynamic range? Certainly. Dynamic range is this. It is the range of signals uh, in a radio receiver that is free of unwanted effects, such as distortion overload, intermodulation distortion, the blocking of signals. It's an undesired effect. You want to try to avoid that. And the dynamic range is the weakest signal 
as compared to the strongest signal a radio receiver can handle without undesired effects. So let's say your sensitivity goes all the way down to minus 130 dBm, but uh, it'll start overloading at minus 20 dBm. So that's a 110 uh, dB difference right there. That would be a very, very high dynamic range. You pump up strong signals in your radio receiver, and you're all the way up to minus 20 dBm, and that's when things start going awry and uh, overloading and blocking of signals or other unwanted effects. So is it fair to say that you want the greatest dynamic range you can get for your money? Hmm. I would say that's not a bad rule of thumb. Um, <clears throat> if you want a very, very high-performance radio receiver and your transceiver, yeah, you want the high dynamic ranges. If you're not going to have a large antenna array, a tall tower with lots of shiny aluminum sparkling all over it, if you don't have that, you don't need the high dynamic ranges. If you can get away with uh, middle of the road or even the economy radios, if uh, that's what you're dealing with. If, if you can, get the highest dynamic range. But in the long run, you do have to pay for it. So if you have the cash and it's a really pretty looking radio, go for it. So really it's possible to overspend to buy more radio. And again, I'm thinking of the casual operator here, to buy more radio than you really need, correct? Absolutely. You may not need to pay for very, very high performance. It's handy, though, to get a middle-of-the-road performing receiver in a transceiver, specifically because there are more functions available on the front panel. If you're a casual operator, do you necessarily want to go digging into a menu to adjust something. Sometimes it's handy to have the knob right on the front of the radio. So for the casual operator, I'd like to see a radio that has middle-of-the-road dynamic range in the uh, 80s and 90s uh, decibel range. And uh, I, I'd go with something, that, of course, that looks really sharp, but also that has some controls on the front. Now, the smaller the radio you get, the less expensive it is. And the reason is it's less expensive to manufacture a transceiver that has fewer controls on it, fewer knobs and buttons. That's why they cost less. If you want to pay a little bit more, you pay for the more knobs, buttons, a real less meter sometimes, you spend a little bit more money on those features. Well, that would make sense. But now let's, let's flip it. Let's say that in this case, we're going to go from a casual operator to somebody who wants to get involved in HF contesting. Now what? Well, first off, you have to think about, do you have the space to put up an antenna? That's a whole other topic. Now, we can presume that the operator considering the top-end radio for contesting has the real estate to do so, has the tower, has the permits, all of those things that a lot of us hams don't have. A lot of us have casual stations. But for those that spend the money, they have lots of real estate to work with. Yes, go ahead and spend the money. There's lots of really nice-looking radios out there, but go for the radios that have the high dynamic range. In fact, uh, some of the radio receivers coming out now are a combination of both analog and digital technology. They may have one stage of conversion in the front end, and have a fixed IF output where the uh, roofing filters go. And then after that point, at, at the uh, first IF output, you stick the SDR. 
And that makes a pretty good receiver these days. So look at the architecture. Uh, digital architecture is um, coming up fast and is just about as equally as good dynamic range-wise as the more traditional conversion-type receivers. So don't be afraid to go with the older radio uh, technology that is a double or a triple conversion. Oh, those radios will be around a little bit longer, but SDRs are coming up fast, and you may want to consider that technology. And there's nothing like, of course, whether it's um, more of a traditional-looking radio or it's a, a radio that you're looking at a computer screen with, it's really nice to see a pan adapter. So if a pan adapter is involved when you're a contester, that's really important because you can see when another signal pops up on the band. Especially if the band's a little bit quiet, you'll see the activity right there on the pan adapter or band scope, whatever your transceiver calls it. Hey, you brought up something uh, we also need to talk about. You mentioned roofing filters. Can you define those and uh, tell us why they're important? Sure. Well, if you have a, a contest station with a large antenna, you're going to have uh, higher antenna voltages at the antenna jack on the back of your radio. And if you have a very, very, very strong signal on that S-meter, um, it's going to cause some sort of undesired effect off frequency. Maybe on another band, you'll have a, a strange signal appearing on the band that you're on, or perhaps your, your uh, audio, your speaker audio drops all of a sudden because there's somebody five kilohertz away, and all of a sudden the signal goes away. That's, uh, that's blocking technology. So um, there's all sorts of undesired effects that, that can happen with uh, signal overloads. And uh, so that's what you're trying to avoid is an overloaded receiver. And the roofing filter is there just like the roof of a house. The roof of the house is there to block the rain from coming in the house. So that roofing filter is there to block some of the strong adjacent off-frequency signals from coming into your radio receiver, kind of like the roof on a house. Stops the rain, well, roofing filter in a radio stops the unwanted desired effects happening in your radio receiver. It limits the energy to one frequency and filters it at the first IF. That's the roofing filter. Very important on uh, high-end radios. Do you only find them on high-end radios? Well, sometimes they're built in automatically as a fixed filter, but the... Um, Middle-of-the-road and top-performing radio receivers have adjustable roofing filters. And uh, sometimes they can be quite narrow, like down to 300 hertz, which is immensely helpful when doing CW on very, very crowded bands with high-level signals. You'll need that roofing filter, the narrowest roofing filter. When you're doing phone and you want a nice, narrow filter for phone operation on single sideband, you use a 3 kilohertz roofing filter because it matches the bandwidth of the emission that you're using. Single sideband, 3 kilohertz. And if you're listening to wide broadcasting and wider frequencies, you'd like the 15K roofing filter. Or 6 would work, but uh, the, the widest filter is appropriate for broadcasting. But when you're on a band full of strong signals, they're all packed together, you want to select the roofing filter that matches the mode. And sometimes you need that really narrow mode for CW. Now, we've been talking, of course, about receiving. What about transmitting? Are there characteristics there, casual versus uh, contester, that you might look at? 
Well, a contester is going to want a radio that's going to drive an amplifier, and they want that exciter, we call it, that amateur radio transceiver that excites the amplifier. We want that exciter, that transceiver, to be as clean as possible. You want the lowest possible intermodulation distortion products on your transmitting system. That means also a clean amplifier if you're using one, and, of course, the cleanest possible transmitter with your transceiver. It's important because you want to concentrate the energy in the bandwidth that you're allowed. You want to concentrate your RF energy in that 2.73 kilohertz wide single sideband transmitted signal. You want all that energy concentrated in those narrow band of frequencies up to 3 kilohertz. Now, if you exceed um, your audio gain, your audio gain's too high, or your processor's on and you're not watching your ALC, or if uh, characteristically uh, the radio has higher intermodulation distortion products than other uh, transceivers, well, you want to try to get the lowest possible IMD products. Because, again, you're concentrating the transmitted energy in the spectrum that you really need, the narrowest spectrum. That gets the communications through. If energy is wasted due to splatter, for instance, and high intermodulation distortion products, especially the seventh and the ninth order products, okay, you want them to be as low as possible. You don't want to waste any energy there where it's not doing any good. You want it within the transmitted signal. Bob, when you speak of the order of the products. Can you define that as well? Well, it's a mathematical relationship, but if you put two tones into the microphone jack of an amateur transceiver on single sideband mode, you'll see on a spectrum analyzer or a pan adapter of a software-defined receiver, you'll see the two tones on the air plus unwanted mixing effects. And these unwanted distortion and mixing effects happen in the audio chain of your transceiver. Uh, and the microphone amplifier, but uh, also the, the driving stages of the transmitter and your final amplifier. The whole system can add up to your intermodulation distortion products. When you look at the pan adapter or spectrum analyzer, you see the two tones that you are intentionally transmitting, but unintentionally you're transmitting these other products. These are distortion products that are created within the transceiver itself, and it happens in the amplifier stages of the microphone preamp, uh, uh, the uh, audio modulation circuitry, the, the transmit driving stage, and the final amplifier. All these things add up to intermodulation distortion products. Anytime you have amplification, you do have distortion products. The idea is to make those distortion products as low as possible. So when you view that spectrum analyzer or or pan adapter, you see the two tones, then you'll see another set of lines, that's uh, the third order products, and you see another set, fifth, seventh, and ninth. It spreads out spectrally, all these odd order products that are mathematically related. They spread out, and you don't want that all spreading out. That, that's, the, that's your transmitted energy just spreading out. You want that concentrated. You want that uh, all of your energy on the upper side band and not wasted on distortion products that happen in both the upper and lower side band. You certainly don't want to have any high distortion products 
on the lower sideband when you're transmitting an upper sideband, for example. No, that's that's true. <laughs> Otherwise, your fellow hams will despise you, I would think. Well, yes, um, that, that can uh, cause arguments. But also, operating a transceiver out of the ALC range, you're supposed to monitor ALC when you talk, right? But if you uh, don't watch that and you exceed the ALC range, you can very well cause these intermodulation distortion products. You want to avoid that. So monitor your ALC, keep the meter within that operating range, within the window, the ALC window. Now, looking over a typical QST product review and looking at the results in particular, and you've still got this wad of money, is there anything else you can think of that you should be paying particular attention to? Well, yes. Most transceivers today require a 13.8-volt power supply. You need a power supply to power the radio, so don't overlook the power supply that runs your transceiver. Now, um, I'm a little bit particular. I like um, devices in my house that generate as little no, uh, noise or no noise as possible. Oh, me too. So I want, I want to make sure that the power supply that I'm using does not create any RF hash. So I genuinely, generally um, choose a linear supply that has a transformer in it. They uh, tend to generate no RFI uh, to cause interference with your HF receiver. So don't overlook the power supply. Number two, the, the real heart of your station is your antenna. So some people believe they should spend a lot of money on power amplifiers. Well, please try and Improving, improving your antenna first, because you'll get a lot more uh, bang for your bucks by putting up a, a better antenna. So work on your antenna system. That's key. Uh, as far as transceivers go, again, you want the large display. You want the knobs that are clearly labeled, knobs that turn easily without turning other knobs at the same time. Sometimes they pack knobs so close together that it's uh, a little bit difficult just turning one knob. And also, one pet peeve I have, I have a, a high-end radio. I'm not going to mention it, but the very bottom row of buttons and knobs on it are very, very, very hard to see. In order to make adjustments to those controls, I have to get down at desk level and get a flashlight and read the labels on the knobs. <laughs> All right, so that's very inconvenient, especially if you're in a hurry and you're trying to make an important contact and you're trying to read what the knobs say. So try to get knobs that are well-marked, uh, legible, far enough apart that you can turn them. And, uh, of course, there are a lot of very, very nice-looking radios on the market, too. So treat yourself to something good. You deserve it, and life is too short. <laughs> buy a radio, but get something for yourself. Your whole family will like it because you're having a good time. Well, I don't know if my family will like it or not because it'll take me, take me away from them. But, you know, you make a good point, a point that needs to be made about the value of the antenna versus the value of the radio if you only have a, a finite amount of money to spend. I used to, Bob, have a friend... Oh, years ago now, this goes back 30 years easily, who was, or he considered himself a budding audiophile, and he bought a wonderful Marantz receiver that cost him a bundle of money, 
and wanted me to come over and and appreciate his new Marantz receiver. Well, I did, and boy, it was impressive, but he had it hooked up to these awful speakers that were just these cheap boxes. And so all the money he spent on his receiver was effectively being wasted because his speakers were just awful. And in a way, the same is true when it comes to amateur radio. You can dump a tremendous amount of money into a transceiver. I mean, a lot, as you know very well. But if your antenna is mediocre or even poor, it would seem as though you've kind of wasted your money. Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm not going to knock the G5RV antenna. I'm just using it as an, uh, an example. But I've, uh, I've met people that have the absolute top-end radios that can be bought. And I ask what the antenna is, and they say a G5RV. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's a good antenna. It's a good all-band antenna, but it isn't, it's a compromised antenna. It's not like having a stacked array of monoband Yaggies that have a lot of gain and a lot of voltage coming out the, that coax connector that you're about to plug into your radio. So you can absolutely spend way too much money on a radio, honestly. And um, I, uh, I have a radio that probably has too much dynamic range for my antenna system. Although I was on six meters during the big band opening during the June QSO party, and I've never seen six meters so packed with strong signals. I was happy I had the dynamic ranges. Well, that's true. I mean, would it be fair to say then, Bob, again, we're going back to this finite wad of money, that you would be better off spending the majority of the money on a decent antenna system versus taking the majority of the money and spending it on a gee whiz high-end transceiver? Yes. Uh, spend as much time as possible on the antenna system. Not everybody can have the optimum largest antenna that's out there. But for the location that you're in, try to maximize that antenna first. And by the way, the ARRL on their website, www.arrl.org, if you use the search box and you type in choosing a ham radio, a fine article uh, shows up uh, authored by Ward Silver, N0AX, and Greg Wyden, K0GW. And also David Haycook, um, KI6AWR. These, uh, it's a great article about how to choose a ham radio. And it goes into more detail than we do here about uh, what to look for. Excellent. Thanks again, Bob. You're welcome, Steve. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments... Email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.